Grab your popcorn and silence those cell phones because the show is about to start. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Rick Blaine is an award-winning film critic featured on TheBigScreen.net.org and has been highlighted on over 75 unreleased independent film posters in less than 12 different countries. Nick Brown. He's been the high school projectionist for the AV Club for over nine semesters and can be heard nightly at the theater talking loudly in the row behind you about the film being screened. And now, they're joining forces. Ladies and gentlemen, Rick and Nick Talk Flicks. Coming at you live from that dark and shady alley. Just around the corner, it's Rick and Nick Talk Flicks, Noir Edition. Welcome to the show. I'm Detective Joel Hoover. I'm Lieutenant Dave Brooks. We're glad to have you along today. You threw me for a curve. I thought you were going to go all Oscars on me. We're live, coming to you from the such and such (laughs) theater with the... No, you went big... We're from the big dark alley behind the such and such theater. That's right. (laughs) Not with how the Oscars are playing out this year. Yeah. uh, it's going to be a different kind of year with that, too. But we'll get to that in a moment. We'll get to Noir in a little bit later as well. Welcome to the show. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, located on Highway 2, just down from the airport. Whether you're going to the movies these days or not, you can keep on supporting the Bemidji Theater. They've got the concessions open for all, even if you're not going in there for the movie itself. You can still get your concessions, you can get your popcorn, you can support the theater in that way. And then when you are ready to head back to the movies, they will be there and they will be playing the flicks as they are coming out and as they are current. And we've had some success here as of late uh, in terms of the box office, which we'll get to in a moment. But Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater. Yeah, go support that theater. Uh, I just went in and re-upped my popcorn here just a little while ago. They have a really good deal. Uh, they got a bucket of popcorn, like an ice cream bucket size thing. Uh, it's $20 when you first buy it, but when you go back for the rest of the year, it's, what, three fifty? I think it is, and they'll refill it. That's a pretty good deal over time. And even yeah. if you're not going in to see a theater show at the movie theater, we had movie night at the house, and we swung by the movie theater, and we got popcorn and candy and an icy, because it's the only place in town you can get an icy, I think, and brought it home and had a wonderful movie night, and still... Supporting the local theater. Let's make sure that when it's safe to reopen completely, they're up and going full throttle. Dave, the box office is not dead. No. And all it took was a pair of monsters battling it out on the big screen to bring the box office back a little bit. Godzilla and Kong, they have they have given a nice injection of life into the box office. And a reminder of what you and I have been saying for some time now people still do want to go to the movies. Yeah, you and I were also talking about something related to this, where, well, such and such theater is going to close down. Why? I mean, right now it makes sense. I get it, you know, but, you know, if all the people go and they're not coming back for a little while, you know they're going to come back. That was the Cinerama in L.A., by the way. Why would you think about shuttering down all the theaters? Well, people aren't coming anymore. It's done. It's over. No, it's not over. It's paused. But people are coming back. I haven't gone to see a movie in almost coming up on a year and a half. You don't think I'm out there panting on the glass waiting to go back? Yeah, but so the fact that now that you've got a good, nice segue, by the way, talking about going to support them, get popcorn, we're talking about the ultimate popcorn movie, King Kong and Godzilla, and it's doing great worldwide box offices into the hundreds of millions. This is approaching normal levels. Uh, even in the U.S., we're coming up on 100 million, which used to be the the benchmark for box office, you know, champion. Uh, this is good. It, clearly, it shows people want to go see a movie. When you put something out there that's good that interests people, they're going to see it. 
I know of a few friends who've been pretty eager to go see this movie. I I think people are just ready to go back to elements of quote-unquote normal life, and this is one of them, is going to see a movie. I mean, Godzilla vs. Kong, I I mean, people have said, yeah, you kind of know what you're getting coming into it, and it was pretty entertaining. That's, That's what I've gotten from friends who have gone to see it, and it's worked for them. It's been the kind of movie that they've appreciated being able to go see at the theater again and being able to be back in person for. So it's it's funny how a movie like this has worked in that regard. There might be even part of a larger thing here. Talk about the roaring 1920s. The roaring 2020s might be for very similar reasons, very similar this go-round. People are, you know, you had... The Spanish flu back at the time, you had the end of World War One, and a lot of stuff that was kind of, let's just call it down and depressing, and when it was finally over, the country went berserk with the Roaring Twenties. Well, now you got very similar situations going. There is the light at the end of the tunnel. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. You don't think the Roaring Twenty Twenties aren't rearing to go? And movies were a big part of that 100 years ago, and that was part of the golden age of movies, the beginning of it anyway, and when movies became a thing. And uh, movie stars became a thing by the end of the 1920s. So it was a whole different kind of era of movies. But now you got the 2020s. You got some great movies that are in reserve, ready to come out. And when it's finally safe for the majority to go, you don't tell me that this isn't going to be a big, big party with movies playing a part in it. And I don't just mean streaming. I mean everywhere. And that includes the box office. Nowhere better. That's right. Yeah, it's it's something to look forward to. It's something to hope for. And I think I hope we're getting a glimpse of that right now with with what's been happening with with Kong versus Godzilla. Hopefully we'll see if you build it. They will come. If you put good things on the screen, people will come, Uh, even if it's not the best time to go. There are people going clearly right now. Uh, as vaccines are rolling out and herd immunity is becoming a thing, and I'm not talking politics, we're just talking general health here, uh, when it's safe to go back to ballparks and go to large gatherings and do so safely, including movie theaters, people are going to be going, and there's some great movies that are being made, that are already made, and just kind of sitting on a shelf waiting to come out. It'll be a good party. It'll be a good rollout, and I will, at some point, be there front and center with the biggest smile on my face. And by the way, yes, I know. It's Godzilla versus Kong, just flipping them around. It's yes. like Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, I guess. You could you know, it's, go either way. I think, if you, depending on uh, when they show the movie in Japan, it's Godzilla versus King Kong. When it's in the U.S., it's King Kong versus Godzilla, because everyone's got their favorites, you know? Maybe. It's like yeah. when you get the two big name stars. Well, who name goes above the other? Well, maybe they'll find a way to kind of flip it. On yeah. the screen, it'll be this way, but on the posters, it'll be the other way. Is it Alien versus Predator or Predator versus Alien? Does it matter? Yeah, I guess not. So, all right. AVP. Or, or, well, in that case, it does matter. All right, the Oscars. The Oscars are this coming weekend from when we are recording this. They will be virtual, like most other award shows have been uh, during this time. And with the Oscars, it, it's not quite like the Grammys or something like that, where there's been new music still popping out during the, the course of the pandemic. As far as new films, it's been on a relatively limited scale that they've been released in this past year. It's been mostly to streaming platforms. There have been almost no major tentpole movies out there this past year, not a lot of big mainstream films, and because of all of that, I think we're heading for an Oscars that are just not going to draw 
a great deal of attention or a great deal of interest. I mean, we've speculated on that for some time now. I'm really curious what kind of viewership numbers the Oscars are going to get this year because there's not a whole lot to really grab the attention going in. I mean, for film buffs and for people who will just watch the Oscars, they'll be there and they'll have some interest in it. But, I mean, when I say film buffs, I mean people who... who you and me. Well, people beyond you and me who, who watch a lot more than even we do, Dave, and who, who have the means to do so or, or who are really interested in film and, and even on a level that we don't really have the time for in terms of being able to watch everything that's new under the sun. But they'll be interested, but I look at, the, I look at this from the mainstream general public standpoint and I go, what exactly is the draw here for the Oscars? You know, I think we've kind of talked about this before, so at the risk of circling back and beating a dead horse, they're not going to put a lot of big movies out that have big budgets like, say, Top Gun Maverick, just to pick one, because that movie costs a lot of money. It's not a $40 million production budget. It's a lot higher than that. It needs to make its money back, and you can't beat the box office actually going to theaters to make back your budget. You can't just have it be an ultimate streamer. How much did they spend on Justice League, the reshoot? A lot. To say nothing about it. Well, hey. that's what well and money. that's purely an hbo max thing i mean yes it did go to theaters but it's not quite the same thing it's pretty much an exclusivity to hbo max to get people in that did get people to sign up as it was a brand new service and that's great now most people now a lot of people are signed up for it so if they try to do that again you can't because they're already they might, there they might do the same thing with game of thrones well there's they, a lot of things they going on. might well, they got. Well, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole. We could talk about the new Lord of the Rings series that's going to be on Netflix that will sure. ultimately be the most expensive. I thought that was TV Amazon show. Prime. Maybe is it? Maybe it is. Yeah. There's so many streamers. Does it matter? You know <laughs> exactly. I think you made the point really well. So you, you need to get these movies into the box office, box office, to get their budget back, so you can actually make money on the movies. I get that. So you don't have so many things coming out, but you also have, you know, say, I'm exaggerating the point here, but you only have 10 movies. What are the odds that your movie, even if it's some movie that no one really cares about, but it was done, you know, okay, like an art film, is going to win Best Picture? The odds are much higher than it would be if it was up against, quote unquote, actual competition that you would normally see, while a lot of those are being held back. I'm a movie buff. You're a movie buff. I almost forgot that it's Oscar weekend because it's just there's no hype about it, and most of which you've gone to the theater throughout the course of the year. You've seen movies. You have your favorites. Some of them are the popcorn movies that they might be up for effects or something, but not Oscars for like the real heavy hitters like Best Picture, Best Whatever. But only a few of them. I think I only saw one of them, and it was The Trial of the Chicago Seven, which was in theaters for a while. Now it's on Netflix, and I'm not going to theaters, so I saw it on Netflix. Haven't seen Kong versus Godzilla because I don't have HBO Max. And this is where we're missing out. Normally, if you haven't seen HBO Max shows, well, let's go to so-and-so's house. Let's all get together. We'll go watch those shows because I don't have them. You don't have them. But he does. Let's go. But he doesn't have the one that I have. So then next week, we'll come to my house and we'll watch the da 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 You can't do that these days. And right. so you're very limited as to what you're able to see. And I'm not going to subscribe to 97 different streamers just because I want to see everything and pay out the nose for it. I don't want to do that. I'm not going to do that. So what am I going to do when a certain movie comes along that I want to see, Oscar-worthy or not? You're going to skip it is what you're going to do. Maybe someday it'll be more widely available. I'll go to Target and it'll be on DVD and I'll buy the DVD and then I'll see it. Something like that. 
So it's not the ultimate answer. Streaming is the future. It is, but it's almost, it's missing a key component. It's a great three-wheeled car. You need the fourth wheel to really make it roll like you think it's going to, like people promote that it's going to. It's not there yet. So when the Oscars come around to backslap for this great year we've not had, I'm lack of fire in my belly. Yeah, the hype just isn't there. The hype train going in just isn't there this year. And and it's because I the attention's been elsewhere, certainly, and, and movies have just been kind of shuttered in different ways. Plus, the movie industry has changed going into this year in terms of the fact that streaming is where people can access more of the content now, too. I mean, everyone's still trying to grapple with that new reality, and is it going to be a temporary thing, or is that going to be a more lasting change? So there's a lot of different factors that that are involved with it, but but primary among it is the fact that we just have not gotten the full slate of movies across this year. I mean, there there may be those those people who are are all about the really artistic films that end up being in the running for the Oscars and they may be very big into those films, but I think what has to be understood through that is those those films are it's important to have that that corner of the film industry you do need to have the tentpole films too though they they are essential they are important for the film industry they are important for the the other films that that do come out that are of a more artistic venture or even for of a more independent venture it's good for the film industry to have both involved you need to have those those big budget popcorn flicks those those box office ones the summer blockbuster type of movies you need to have those kinds of movies out there you also do need to have those ones that that are a little bit more on the independent track that end up being some of the ones that really make a big run during award season and if you can have both that's especially nice it feels like we've got less and less of of the the ones that are really well done that make a big run for the big awards like the Oscars and have a big box office draw. It feels like we have less and less of those two things together than we had even a decade ago, two decades ago. We it's it's changed a lot. I think the landscape has in that regard. That's why I was glad they ex- expanded the best picture genre a little bit more. Well, I, I, I agree with everything you just said. I couldn't dis I could not disagree at all with anything you said. But even more so, when you see a movie and you like the movie, now that movie's up for an award. You kind of root for that movie. Well. I kind of feel now going into this Oscars, like when I was younger and I'd watch the Oscars at home with my parents, after a while, and they got quote-unquote older, they'd be talking amongst themselves while watching this. I don't know. Do you know who this movie? I don't know who that actor is. I don't know any of these. That's kind of where I am. Yes, I'm aware of you know some of these things that are up, and I know the, the actors and actresses and so forth, but I haven't seen these. I'm not likely going to, for you know, especially not between now and Sunday, so... Other than Trial of Chicago 7, that's all I've seen, and that's probably all I'm going to see between Sundays. So what I do watch, and I probably will watch some of it, I don't care. I'm not invested. And that puts me in the lot of the majority of the Americans because Oscars numbers, ratings-wise, go down and down and down as they're less and less engaged. I'm, for this year, going to be among them because I got nothing. Right. So I'm really curious to see what the numbers end up being with all well, of that. Well, they'll be historically low. I would, I mean, you know, will I that be imagine. the beginning of a trend, or will you look back after a few more Oscars are under belts after this year and after the pandemic? Yeah, that was a historically low dip for obvious reasons, but 
it'll look bad on Monday when the ratings come out. But, you know, four years from now, Monday, it'll be, well, obviously it was low for that reason. Anyway. All right, let's dip back into that alleyway talk of shouldn't where like, we are. Shouldn't there be like an atmospheric saxophone music playing, echoing, lonely, wailing down an alleyway somewhere while we Maybe talk about so. this? Maybe so. And it, I mean, this is a very non-visual medium that we are doing this through. This is a podcast, but it feels like the lights should be brought down low a little bit. We've got a lot, white of, levels. a lot of shadows that are going on, too. <laughs> because we are talking about noir, and, and noir is such a an interesting genre and let's let's kick off here with what we're talking about and defining it when i was starting to appreciate movies (laughs) more than just lightsabers and explosions when i was a little boy and starting to you know oh enjoy the meal kind of thing film noir n-o-i-r is actually french uh and translated directly means dark film and this was something that kind of started in the days, in the years after World War II, when you had, you know, and during, and during, when you had, you know, I keep bringing up Humphrey Bogart, and you know, this was his heyday back in there. It's what it really is: is how do you define film noir? Because stuff dreams are made of. Yeah, but what it was were you know, <laughs> a kind of a bleak reality, pessimistic characters, more of an anti-hero in the center of it. Yeah, um, and and stylistic with the stark lighting, and you can go full out and have the whole Art Deco thing. And so a lot of folks associate film noir as things from the 1940s or things that harken back to that era. It doesn't necessarily need to be the visual of it. The Dark Knight is a film noir movie if you really break it down because it's all about bleakness. It's all about stark contrast. It's not visually representing what you think of as the film noir peak, if that's what you want to call it, back in the 40s. It doesn't look like film noir, but what the criteria is for film noir is present. It is there. It's easier to see in other movies like L.A. Confidential or uh, Usual Suspects or obviously movies that really look the part. Yeah. Um, but film noir is, it's it's almost a tougher movie. It's not a hard movie to define, but it's one that you need to get a grasp on before you really kind of understand it. See, this is where I was going to go because even if you look up film noir a little bit, Defining it is a very difficult thing to do because there are some critics out there who don't even believe it is a genre fully in and of itself. It's a because, subgenre. Because it is almost too broad. There, It's almost too broad strokes in what you could define as film noir, whether it's the, the visual side of it or the characterizations of, of the people involved. It's not as... It's not as specific as as other genres. Um, one thing that that people attribute it, it to, as far as like, let's look for another example of a genre that is maybe kind of hard to actually pinpoint as an actual genre would be the screwball comedy, which is funny because they're both around the same kind of time frame. Screwball comedy was especially around in the 30s, but then in the early 40s too. Film noir picked things up then in the early 40s and went into about the mid 50s. Very similar time frames, very similar in that a lot of people view them as a genre, and yet at the same time it's a very broad genre that is not just a, well, it's got this, it's got this, it's got this, it must be film noir. No, it could have um, it could have many different kinds of looks to it and still be considered a film noir. Noir seemed to come out of a couple of different things from from what my research has shown. Think about the the 30s. 
you have the Great Depression going on. You have, um, in Hollywood, it, it was funny because with Hollywood and with the movies that were getting produced at that time, you have, you have some of those comedies that are out there. You have these a little bit more lavishly produced dramas that existed then too. You have... You have some song and dance type of musical type stuff. I mean, people really took advantage of the the talkies and the fact that you could do talkies now. And they found people who are really good with song and dance. You have these these beautiful people who are, are on screen. During a time like that, you know, something that, that's a little bit of a getaway, of an escape, and you can enjoy something that's enjoyable when you're going to the big screen. I know that's a little redundant, but I think that still makes the point. Um, well, I think a lot of the movies back then were almost... I'm going to come up with my own phraseology here, but maybe hyper fantasy in a way. Yeah, they were not yeah. really realistic. They were either very fantastical, fantastical, like say Wizard of Oz, or even the musicals. Nobody was like that in real life. But when you got into the noir and that kind of started to come up, it kind of brought a lot of the subject matter and the way it was presented a lot closer to reality. It did, and there was a realism that came from it from a couple of different things. One was it was. The noir genre I've read was influenced a bit by even scandals in Hollywood. You know, if there was like some kind of crime scandal or some other kind of scandal like that, suddenly the facade of these people who are on the big screen is is broken by whatever they had going on in their personal life. The other influence was the rise of crime novels and graphic novels and things like that that came about in the 30s too that also provided a little bit of an antithesis to what you had in that that sparkling shiny side of things in in the movie industry and so came the noir genre and looking at the darker side of society and of morality as well, and bringing that to the screen then. Let's give it a musical parallel. Um, you talk about getting into the 90s, everything was so glamorized with pop and rock. It was all so produced, and then along comes grunge and garage bands that made it to the mainstream. It was a much more nuanced, much less polished, almost an anti-hero kind of music where these guys <laughs> are not the type of people you would imagine would be on a poster on your kid's wall, but nonetheless... They rose out of that. Very much what happened with noir, it was a much more nuanced, um, realistic in a way, to a degree, uh, type of movie that came out. Film noir at the time was the grunge music of its era, if you want to give it that kind of a parallel. Well, even saying the word realistic, I think you have to consider as well that Sure, maybe it's a little bit more realistic as far as like the darker sides of, of the world and of people, but it's still very hyperized even in that sense, Dave. I mean you've True. got these you've got these characters, you've got these situations that are that that almost go the exact opposite direction of the super shiny everything everything's really neatly tied up with a bow side of things too. Boy who do you even root for in a situation like this? It's very hard to find the flower amidst the the barren wasteland that sometimes is noir and the the morality of some of the characters that that come in. It it can be very hard to find somebody to root for well, in, in a movie hat, like that. White hat. It's it's not clear cut as to who you're supposed to cheer for. This might be almost where not just film noir movies, but the things that kind of inspired them. Is almost where the anti-hero 
might have come from. You know, it, it was shining good or downright sinister evil. Those were your two choices. Then along comes Noir and throws a whole black and white thing out, and now it's all shades of gray. You've got a character that you're basically supposed to root for who does things that aren't great. You know, I'm supposed to cheer for him. He just kicked a puppy. What? Why would I cheer for him? He's cheating on his wife. Why would I cheer for him? You'd run into things like that, but at the heart of things, he is a good person, but a deeply flawed person. You didn't run into things like that prior to that. They were either good or they were not. It, those were your two choices. And yet at the same time, those shades of, of the gray area there really vary based on the movie. There are some movies where you can get behind a character within that movie a little bit more. If it involves like Humphrey Bogart and like The Big Sleep or something, maybe you can get behind that character a little bit um, with that private investigator kind of role that he had. But then you've got a movie like Double Indemnity, which is one of the, maybe the classic film noir, Double Indemnity, where say that three times fast, Hoove. No thanks. We <laughs> it might take us a little while to actually get through this. Um, where you've got you've got main characters who you cannot get behind because of what they are doing in the movie. I mean, they're trying to knock off this woman's husband, and I mean the main guy is Fred McMurray, who's this this insurance salesman who is <laughs> who is um who's suckered in by a bedeviling Barbara Stanwyck in that movie. And, like, even with Edward G. Robinson, he's he's kind of like the the moral compass a little bit of this as, as uh, Fred McMurray's boss. And yet, you're wondering, is he going to catch them? Are, are, do I root for Edward G. Robinson with this? Like, who am I rooting for? Do I root for Fred McMurray and Barbara Stanwyck? That's kind of morally wrong. They're trying to knock off her husband. They're trying to get away with this this insurance loophole, basically. But then comes the the femme fatale side of it because you think that Barbara Stanwyck has maybe some reasons for doing this that maybe seem justified, but well, she's got a lot more going on than what meets the eye, and that's where the femme fatale side comes in, which is another classic part of noir. Maybe it's where we should take the turn and start breaking down some of the elements that are the building blocks that are maybe not always, but are quite often found and associated with film noir. You started, maybe that film, femme fatale is a good spot to start. You know, when you're talking about, say, Kim Basinger or Passenger, however you say it, in Basinger. LA Confidential, you know, she's the femme fatale role, and she's not the first. You know, she might be one of the best because she won an Oscar for the role. But this speaks to the the broad strokes definition of film noir, because even a femme fatale can be broad strokes. It's not oh, like yeah. they are going to be It's only somebody... a unique character that's a stamp, and it's not right. going to change from beyond its boundaries. It is, it's a very broad stroke term. It is, because sometimes they are two-faced characters, the femme fatale. Sometimes they're not, though, and Delicious yet they still poison. get and yet they still get characterized as a femme fatale. It's, it's a little bit hard to really pinpoint that, much like with the genre itself. You can't just pinpoint it as it is definitely in, in this category. You can expect these characteristics and traits. That's not always the case. I'll give you an example of what we're talking about. Um, 
All right, we're going to go into a hard R movie here, Hoove. You've probably never seen this, but Basic Instinct has got a great example of a femme fatale. Now, when you think of femme fatale, you think of a, of a gal that's gorgeous, but she might be two-faced or maybe she's delicious poison. Um, but she's also, in a lot of ways, damsel in distress. She might hold the key to the whole thing, but she's very much at the mercy of dot, dot, dot. Then you get to Basic Instinct. You have Sharon Stone's character, and this is very much a film noir movie. And in a lot of ways, it pays a lot of homage to Vertigo, one of Alfred Hitchcock's is great. It's a, it's almost looked at as a companion to that movie. They're very different movies, but there's a lot of connective tissue there. And her character of, um, what's the name of the character? Catherine Trammell is her character's name. She is absolutely a femme fatale, but she's not, she's no damsel in distress. She is in charge of all of this. Everything that happens in that movie is up to her, but the big question is, did she, didn't she? Is she a murderer? Is she not a murderer? And is she going to murder you? And is she going to murder the cop that's investigating it? You know, and you go, she's, she's the black widow spider and she's got the web. And if you go into it, you go in willingly. And are you going to get out? Will you live through this? She's absolutely a femme fatale that in a lot of ways, because of her, let's call it dominance, she is not necessarily fitting the traditional role of femme fatale. She might get you. She's delicious poison, but she's not at your mercy. It's the other way around. Delicious poison. Delicious poison. <laughs> Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theaters. We're talking noir today. That just sums up how how broad the definition can go with with even something like femme fatale and with noirs themselves. Maybe the defining characteristic of noir, though, is the setting. It is the feel of the movie. It is a darker kind of feel. That's why with noir films of the last, oh, I want to say like five, six decades, they fit into a different category of neo-noir, with neo meaning new, new noir. It's not quite film noir as we knew it from the 40s and 50s, but it's a newer kind of version of it that harkens back to the way noir was, but doesn't quite have the same kind of characteristics, and especially because the black and white element is no longer a part of it. And that's, that's something that I think is, is worth appreciating about noir films because they created setting and used the black and white nature of filmmaking to such a successful degree because they knew how to be able to get setting out of it, whether it was deep shadows or how you would use the lighting or where your setting was. And then if you put the right music with it too, boy, you've got a lot of potential to create a deep amount of suspense and uncertainty and unnervingness that comes with that black and white setting. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you got a lot of great movies that are, let's call them newer movies, but newer movies is a broader term these days. You know, you look at movies, uh, I'm going to go down some kind of a rabbit hole here, so I'm going to try to avoid that. I'll change my top, my, I'll change my course just a slight bit, but a lot of the newer movies, the neo-noir are, like you said, they've got those elements. Like you don't think of, well, you know, the dark Knight doesn't look at all like those movies. Yeah, but it's got all the elements That's there. It's neo-noir. It's yeah. very neo-noir. It's not, you know, classic film noir. It certainly doesn't have some of those elements. There isn't really a femme fatale in there. There isn't the Art Deco look, which is well known for it. It doesn't have the stark lighting per se. It's kind of a drab look anyway. So some of the more traditional elements of noir aren't there. 
while from a character perspective and a narrative perspective, they are absolutely there. You've got a whole city. Gotham City is on the edge of very bleak outlook. Well, it's hopeless, guys. Well, you know, a very pessimistic outlook on things. And that's a big part of noir, where it kind of has these hard-boiled kind of characters. They are the way that they are. Uh, I'm here to do good, but it's a hopeless case. You know, that's kind of what gives rise to the Dark Knight anyway, to come up and save Gotham from its own dingy darkness, you know, to kind of save it from the noir in a way. Um, It's film noir is a lot of things. Sometimes it's, you know, I always thought that the mask, you know, the Jim Carrey comedy had elements of film noir. And in a way it does. I mean, it's very art deco. It's got some hard-boiled characters. And in the middle of it is all this zany thing. So it's not exactly a true noir movie, but it does have elements of it. While other movies that you wouldn't think would have those elements absolutely do baked in. So it's, it's like we said, to start this thing off, there's, it's a, it's a kind of difficult thing to define, but, you know, and we kind of brushed up, we kind of know what film noir is, but we almost need to brush up on it before we start explaining it. Well, what you know film noir is? Yeah, of course I do. Okay. Define it. Well, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, so you kind of brush up on, you know. But that's what, kind of an understandable answer. Yeah. What does Webster's Dictionary say it is? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it kind of galvanizes your opinion and you can, oh, yeah, I get it. Oh, yeah, I get that. And then you can actually explain it a little bit better. But even still, when you start getting into the nuance and discussing, can you get lost in the details a little? Yeah. And it, it is kind of difficult to define. And hopefully, at the very least, when we're done talking about this, those that are listening in might have a better a appreciation and b understanding of what is film noir and by extension neo noir. But types of characters are a big part of it. Sometimes, Absolutely. you know, we we mentioned the femme fatale, and uh, you know, Barbara Stanwyck's Phyllis Dietrichson is probably the most famous from uh, Double Indemnity. But then you've got like Jane Greer in Out of the Past. Oh. Man, I've I've watched that movie. Like Jane Greer, like it kind of kind of takes you aback a little bit. Lana Turner in the po- the Postman always rings twice. You know, there's there's another example a little bit there of characters who have some of those elements as a femme fatale, but a cynical detective or a cynical investigator or some kind of lawman who's a little bit uh, who who kind of toes the line on both sides of uh, on both sides of morality is is a big part of it too would that mean that for who framed roger rabbit is film noir maybe <laughs> maybe an element of there it there are elements there of are it, elements there. yes but think of like humphrey bogart in the maltese falcon as sam spade i mean there's there's a classic example right there of a, a, well think about indiana jones you know in the very in raiders of the lost ark he's introduced to uh, former love marion well, wait a minute. It's, it's been implied, but it was never said explicitly. She was young and theoretically underage before when they had their first tryst. And now they're coming back together years later. Well, that's kind of a shady thing for Indy to do. So it's kind of, in a way, right off the bat. And there's a lot of noir in that movie also. Indy is a, you know, is a good guy, but maybe not so squeaky clean as a lot of us. You know, he's listed as maybe one of the number one heroes of all time, and he may very well be, but he's a flawed hero. And you don't you're not thinking about those part of the elements. I think you are you are kind of summing up a little a bit place, a place where we could be getting to eventually with, with yeah. this discussion of how noir has impacted future genres and future movies in a lot of ways, and and that's perhaps one of characters who've got a lot of nuance to them, and it, it that you can't really totally characterize them like you said in one category or or another in terms of good and bad and and what their elements are. With a lot of these protagonists, that's the case with them. I mean, 
Sam Spade, very cynical, private investigator, detective. I mean, um, I mentioned out of the past, Robert Mitchum in there, very cynical um, in in his main role that he's in. I mean, you've got, uh, or um, I haven't seen this one yet, but Murder My Sweet with uh, Philip Marlowe, Dick Powell's character in there. I mean, you've got these... The investigator is very often a another trope of film noir, or the the central guy who's involved here in some way, or somebody who works in in the law or is investigating something in some way, shape, or form. Marlowe, the character of Marlowe, was one of those hard boiled film noir detectives that just he defined that role, and forever there were different versions of him and even parodies of him. To the point where they had to come up with uh, some other completely different way, like a Jim Rockford, who was so far away from that archetype, and that kind of opened the gates for more things like Magnum P.I. They're still in that same genre, so to speak, but they're very, very different type of characters, where before that, anyone that was a uh, detective-type character, they were all in that vein of Philip Marlowe and so forth, the real cynical detective-type and that's a huge part. Magnum P.I. as a film noir would never work because he's so optimist as rather than pessimistic. Even though it's the same kind of character, they're very starkly different by that one defining characteristic. So setting is such a big part of it, though, too. And, you don't get and a lot of farmer film noir movies, do you? Not, not, not really. really no. Maybe a looper. That, that shadowed photography that comes with it. Um, sometimes there are flashbacks involved that have a little bit of narration that comes with it, too. Think of like, oh, um, I'm blanking. I'm suddenly blanking on the, uh, the name of the movie, but it's got Orson Welles, and it has... Well, that's that was one I was going to get to, The Third Man. That's a very different one because yeah. they use a zither in that one as the main the main musical sound comes from a zither. Which is it, like a it, guitar, but kind of like a not fully a guitar but like a ukulele almost. That that's a great example of a noir movie, but again, there's a, a good example of a noir movie that was a little bit different from from others because the music is a different kind of tone there. In in that movie, I, very, and had a female director. Very, I mean, very that's different movie. Got to have influence from that too. At a time that there just weren't female directors, and that's one that did. The Third Man, great movie, post World War Two. I just watched it for the first time a couple of weeks ago. Oh, what'd you think? It was very good. It was. I, I was. I was kind of surprised. I, I was really taken aback by by the tone of it because I I just expected all oh, this is going to be classic noir, and then the music goes completely different direction i thought of the movie now it, it's got orson wells and rita hayworth the lady from shanghai oh, okay, that's yeah. what i was thinking of there because there's there's one where oh you've got the you've got the uh the narration of orson wells all throughout and you can tell i mean this is all building up to something bad here something bad is going on something bad is going to happen you know it, it's building up toward that all throughout you just get that feeling all the way through and the narration feeds into it too and it's that talking in hushed tones talking in darkened tones i'm looking back with a lot of regret on this thing that happened previously but here i am telling you the story isn't that how Orson Welles talked all the time well, I suppose. Even maybe, War of the Worlds, sometimes. the radio drama, he was... Even on Star Trek, the motion pictures... <laughs> the trailer, yeah. Trailer. <laughs> he was the voice of uh, of uh, Robin Masters in Magnum P.I. 
So another good example right there of um, of how the tone can be impacted uh, quite a bit as well by um, by even even just the way that you have something like a narration involved, but. But the visual, the visual side of it, and the musical side of it, whether it's those low horns, those low horns are so often involved with it too. Or that's why that's why the third man was so unique then, because it just flipped around that part of what you expect with the film noir trope. And Almost then a cheerful says, sounding. Let's score. just throw a zither in there for even these these more uh, the these more shadowy type of moments. It's like, boy, this feels different. This is this is weird. But it worked. Yeah. And I mean, the funny thing, Orson Welles is basically the lead character, but he's barely in the movie. He's, but but he was so interested in the role. I like his first appearance too, when the light just quickly shines on him there in that corner. He was so interested in the role because even though he's barely in it, he's got like, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes of screen time, but everyone's talking about him the whole movie, you know, about what's he doing? Where is he? What's going on? But it was also one of those things where it was, um... It's, he's got his own theme, musical theme in the score, which is really uplifted. And da-da, 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 da-da. It sounds like <laughs> what you would expect if you were to go to a children's restaurant called Hee Haw's. You know, it's just, it's, it was so upbeat and uplifting. But wait, does it go with this movie? And it's such a cheerful theme for such a dark guy whose character is a war profiteer who's wanted by authorities on all sides. And he's, is he good? Is he bad? They go up in the carousel. Is he going to push you out of the carousel? You just, you kind of don't know. Referring to all the people down below that are small, small like ants. You could just step on an ant. And is he speaking literally? Is he really going to And he's talking to this out? guy who has been backing him up. Joseph Cotton's yeah. character who has been backing him up, who Holly has Martins. been defending him. Yeah, Holly Martins, who's been defending him the whole way. And then he ends up being something completely different and you know you get a bit of that in film noir too I and mean, you don't you don't get a lot of movies that are set in immediate post-war europe where everything is still bombed out but they're starting to try to dig things out and uh vienna isn't that where it's mostly set yeah vienna so great movie if you've never seen it the third man great great movie but anyway back to more film noir you know, and one of the other things is we've talked a little bit about it is Art Deco is one of the things that are well known. Art Deco kind of hit its peak in the twenties and into the forties also, and it was one of those things that was looked at even still. I think as kind of glamorous, kind of architectural look. Again, this being a podcast, it's difficult to really truly describe Art Deco. I'm sure if you want to hit pause and open up a tab on your browser, go to Google Image and type in Art Deco and see what kind of imagery pops up, you'll get the idea. But if you think about the golden era of Hollywood and all the accoutrements that went with it, Art Deco comes yes. to mind. Yes, um, that that feel, that look, very influenced by the even the 20s. Oh, yeah. Very much bit. so. Yeah. Influenced by the 20s and that overall look, and then it carried into the 30s. And I think when Art Deco gets used in movies today, it's done in a very stylized fashion. I mean, they, they'll they'll call upon Art Deco, but they'll do so in a very stylized way because, I mean, you don't have sets that are quite like that anymore. I mean, even even if you watch, like... Um, a movie I've I've seen only once before, um, Dick Tracy. You know something like that. You, you know that's that's kind of borrowing that that sort of Art Deco kind of look a little bit too. But think um, Great Gatsby. That's oh yeah, Art Deco Gatsby. and then some. And I don't care which version you're talking about. They're all Art Deco. You know, even the book looks well, like Art Deco. The Baz Luhrmann version of the film does really lean into it. Art heavily. Deco on on speed. That's <laughs> what that movie is. 
A huge, that's the Hulk Hogan of Art Deco. Yeah. <laughs> Steroids, yep. What you gonna do, brother? Yeah, so. We just took a turn. Yeah, really, really push that that idea. But if you want to see what it looks like, there's there's your version. There's your stylized version of it. Yeah. These are all elements that are brought into Art Deco. So maybe one of the things we should talk about, and we've kind of touched base in describing Art Deco, but maybe we ought to go the other way and talk a couple of good movies that are pretty good examples of Art Deco. We've obviously, or not Art Deco, Film Noir. Obviously, we just talked about The Third Man. We've talked about a few others. One of them that we've talked about before, which is one of yours and my favorite movies, is The Usual Suspects. It doesn't have all the elements there. It certainly doesn't drip in Art Deco, maybe in a scene or two, but uh, it's got the characteristics and it's got the the setting type. It's got yeah. a lot of those elements. It does not have a femme fatale, really. No, not really. But that's that's a prime example then of neo-noir and yeah. the way that noir has influenced movies of even the present day in a very heavily and a very heavy way tell me dave when you watch the usual suspects or w- think back to when you first would watch it like the first time or two i remember the first time who do you root for in that movie or what do you root for in that movie we should probably jump in here real quick with spoilers may lie ahead. So if you've not seen Usual Suspects or other movies that we might bring up a title of and you, I want to see that and I haven't seen that, you might want to think about the skip ahead or pause feature or whatever because spoilers, I have a feeling from this point on, We've may done be that coming. a little bit earlier too. So just, just reminding you, just, just reminding you. So, oh, so The Usual Suspects. First time I ever saw it, I'd heard great things, didn't really know anything about it. It's a crime movie. Okay, sounds good. Put it in, you know, th- you're talking about criminals that are going to go on a heist. They're, you know, not really doing good things, but they are presented to you as the as the viewer as who you're going to root for. I'm not rooting for the cops. I'm not rooting for the Hungarians on the boat. So you're rooting for this ragtag band of whittled down now to four guys so going you are, on the boat. So you are rooting for them. You're, de- you're, you're rooting for a to. group of criminals. See, that's where I think it's a great example of a neo-noir kind of movie. Because, because everybody's a criminal in this movie. Right, you are shoehorned into rooting for people with questionable intentions who may not be who they appear. I mean, you get this idea that that maybe it's one of them who's the actual major villain, and it gets presented that way by the end of the movie. With one of the main guys, in fact, the main ringleader gets presented as the main baddie, and well, you, it's, you think that's where the end is. The whole story is being told in a police station where you've got... Um, Chaz Palminteri's character, who has been on a lifelong, career-long hunt to get this guy who he suspects might be. He's a bad guy, but he also might be this other ultra-legendary bad guy, Kaiser Soze. So that starts to tie into it. Well, he is a bad guy, and I'm trying to get him you know, pinned to this thing so I can really you know, basically get my piece de resistance of my career. But also, is he this ultimate bad guy? Ultimately, with one of the greatest twists in movie history, when you find out who the ultimate bad guy really is. Right. And it's not who you would think it is. And if you don't know the twist, and by this point, that movie's 25 years old, it's been spoofed. I mean, heck, it was in one of the scary movies. Movies. So, I mean, it's it's been spoofed. It's not like it's the secret that it used to be. Um, but it's still one of the greatest twists, and it certainly is honoring to the neo-noir plot line of it it's very pessimistic to the core and it's not a Shawshank Redemption twist ending that makes you feel good it's 
true to its dark and sinister nature. Neo-noir influences are, are really interesting to watch because you do you lose some of what what there was with black and white films, which I sometimes wonder sometimes. I'm like, maybe some films could take some cues and do more black and white type of movies today. Maybe maybe if you want to try to get some of that that feel back, why not try doing a black and white film? If there if there are any production companies listening out there who want to take that idea into consideration. Some, some have. What was some the, have, yeah. What was, the, was it called The Lighthouse? Where yes, you had, yes. Yeah. That was black and white, but the fact now that any movie is black and white almost is its own selling point. They almost did Saving Private Ryan in black and white. Right. And they didn't, but they did this real washed kind of look yeah. to it. Uh, that's a whole other thing. But it's it's because in a lot of ways, black and white turns people off just because it's, you know, well, why isn't it in color? I don't understand why it's not in color. How come it can't be in color? And it takes away from it. Even the well, black and white scenes in Memento which itself is very neo-noir. Sure, yeah. Uh, you know, some people, well, I don't know if we should do it in black and white. Well, it needs to visually distinguish itself because half this movie is moving backwards and this is a flashback that needs to be told in forward. It needs to be visually distinctive. But black and white, anything can turn an audience off just because it is itself retro, picture, too retro. Picture a movie like Shutter Island in black and white, though. Yeah. How perfect would that be? I mean, they they did a great job in, in a movie like that of still creating a setting that was a noir-like setting, though, with... You almost they, remember they used, it in black and white, They don't used you? other things. They used weather. They used location. I mean, they, they used things like that to bring about that noir kind of feeling with that movie. Um, but picture a movie like that in black and white, though. Picture a movie like No Country for Old Men in black and white. You know, these these neo-noir type movies where they still make it work really well using color films that that we are in today and and that pretty much everything is today. They still find a way to be able to create that neo-noir setting even even though that that piece of it and the the shadowy kind of nature to it that that came with black and white movies is is gone. They still find a way to be able to create suspense really well through through use of of other things, setting wise, and even like you talked about with, you know, Saving Private Ryan's not a noir movie, but they used they used tonality change there to be able to create a certain kind of setting. Neo noir movies today have done similar kinds of things. It's interesting how you kind of say the impression, the impression like Shutter Island. Not shown in black and white, but every time I think about it, I almost see it in my mind's eye in black and white. The same way that people claim they saw red blood in the shower tub in Psycho, there isn't. In fact, it was brown chocolate syrup. It wasn't red on the set. Right. You know, but it just looked better in black and white to have it like that. But it made an impression. I'm pretty sure I saw a lot of gore, and no, you didn't, because it just, it isn't there. It isn't there, but it made such an impression on you that you see things that you didn't actually see. It's like when things happen off screen. Almost seeing that lends to more credibility because your mind will take over to fill in the gaps and what it can fill in with might be better than anything else that you saw. That's why you don't see the shark in Jaws. It was a good solution because the shark didn't work. So they had to come up with other ways and it made it almost more frightening for you. And film noir and the examples that you use in the way that you do it production value wise is a great example of that. So the genre of, of noir, it may not be it may not be as around as much as it was in the 40s and 50s. In fact, I mean, that's that's viewed as the classic period of film noir. And 
Eddie Muller on, on Turner Classic Movies has a, a noir alley every Saturday night where you get a chance to watch a, a classic film noir. So it, it very much does live in the specter of the past, does the genre. But as, as we've pointed out here, whether it's through neo-noir or even its influences on other genres, I think this, this genre has been massively influential um, when it comes to filmmaking. I, I think that genre even set the stage for some of the more gritty realism movies that came around by the time the late 60s rolled around. Because coming out of the golden age of Hollywood, those movies started to become more prominent and and I believe they they borrowed some elements and they borrowed characters um, and they they borrowed that that seedier side a little bit more and and put it into um, put it and and borrowed those elements from from noir and infused a new kind of look to them that was a bit grittier and even even more of a of a darkened cynical kind of reality but it didn't just do that with one character it did that with the whole film. You know, I think film noir, let me put it to you this way. When the next Pirates of the Caribbean movie starring Johnny Depp comes out, all of America is going to give a collective, oh, nobody asked for this. Everybody always appreciates when another film noir movie comes out, especially a classic noir movie, because they're always good and they're always appreciated. And it's a genre I don't think will ever go out of style. Whether it's set in a particular time era, like a lot of them will go back, like L.A. Confidential was set in the 50s, so it really grabs with a stranglehold film noir. Not just the elements of it, but the look of it and the era of it. I don't think it's a movie that gets made, or a type of movie that gets made a lot, because I don't think you need to. A lot of movies have elements that you will find in film noir, but not enough of them to call it film noir. You've always got, nowadays, shades of characters, no more white hats and black hats. That's on almost every movie that's not a Disney movie that you'll find. I mean, Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones, or even Han Solo, he's not a straight good guy. He's a smuggler, which is, you know, in and of itself, criminal. But uh, it's, a, it's a genre that I think is well appreciated, and every now and again you'll get a rare noir movie that is like an L.A. Confidential that really goes back to that era. It's set in the 40s or the 50s or whenever. Those are rare. But noir movies and the elements of them are a lot more common than you think about. Maybe if it takes five of those ingredients to officially call it noir, a lot of movies might have three or four of those ingredients, but it's missing just enough that you can't call it a film noir so it's it's one of those subgenres that you know what is it a subgenre of? Well, usually crime, drama, thriller, not usually comedies, but I mean, it's, I guess it's not like you couldn't, you know. Um, the man with two brains, an old Steve Martin classic, is is a I don't know if you've ever heard of that one or no, Dead Men Wear Plaid. That's the one I'm thinking of, where he inserts himself into old film noir movies in black and white. It came out in the early '80s. Carl Reiner directed it. That would be a straight up film noir comedy. You know, and that's one you would love to go see. The Dead Man Don't Wear Plaid, um, where he's just literally inserting himself into old movies with James Cagney and so forth, almost like Forrest Gump was in all these historic scenes. And it's done well. And it's 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 stupid and it's zany, but it's Steve Martin at his best, and it's a great, great movie. But I digress. Um, yeah, they're movies that they I think they are around more than you think they're around, or at least good shadows of them. The influence of yeah. it is around more than people think. Yeah, elements. You, I mean, you, elements. You can see it. It's all made up of building blocks. If you have you know three of the five, well, there's a lot of film noir elements, building blocks that are there, but you need a few more to really call it a film noir, and it just misses a couple of blocks. Doesn't mean it's not a good movie. Doesn't mean it's you know 
it, 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 there's a lot of shades to it. It reminds me of, but isn't quite there. I think film noir is a genre that's never going to die out because there's always elements around, but when you get enough of them in the right thing, eggs, wheat, and flour can make a lot of different things, but not always that they make a cake. And again, the fact that they were an antithesis kind of movie to what was around in their day. I mean, those lighter, enjoyable, fun movies of, of that time there in the 40s, in the 50s, they're, they're fun to look back on. Noir found a, a real niche, though, in that time because it, it presented something a little bit on the opposite, well, not just a little, fully on the opposite side of the spectrum and one that made the viewer really really question who it was who you root for who can you trust and and brought in some elements of realism too while again like i said earlier still doing so within the fantastical realm of a movie some people have said and i'm not saying i agree with this i'm just saying some people have talked about when america lost its innocence you know when jfk was assassinated when world war ii happened Maybe film, and I don't know if we ever had an innocence, to be quite honest, but uh, you talk about when film noir came out, America, prior to that, in what they would like to present it as, was so squeaky clean in all the movies that came out. So when World War II is going on and our sons and fathers and husbands and so forth are all going off to war, that's some bleak stuff. And the Nazism and the stuff that would come out following the war Everything was escapism. You had Snow White in theaters, and then playing at the next theater down the street might be one of those film noir bleaker, no black and white, but I mean, no black hat, white hat kind of thing, but you've got dark characters that you're cheering for. So in a way, you're almost cheering for the bad guy. Maybe that's what some people consider the time that America lost its innocence, and it was shown in its theatrical presentations, maybe to an extent, film noir kind of, especially when it was a brand new thing, dark film. That's what they called it. Maybe that personifies when America lost its innocence. Just throwing that out there. Or maybe, like you said, Dave, maybe it it portrayed things that were in existence all along. Yeah, exactly. And put them on display. I mean, like I said, America, I don't think has ever had an innocence. I mean, from the very beginnings, there's, there's dark and bad things happening. But we always like to romanticize the past. We always like to look at rose tinted glasses. And maybe even at the time, don't look over here, look over here. But at that point, when you had more options, particularly in media, and I don't want to go down the rabbit hole here, but um said that a few times this episode, actually. But this might be the first time, really, that we were showing on a mass scale other parts of American life in film noir that was less than stellar. You know, the good guy ain't so good. Rick and Nick Talk Flicks is sponsored by the Bemidji Theater, located on Highway 2, just down from the airport, as we are getting to talk some noir today. Very wide-ranging subject Maybe you can catch Noir Alley sometime on TCM. If you're looking for an idea for a Noir movie, you've got one right there every Saturday night. Or we made a couple of suggestions for different movies here within uh, within the discussion throughout here today. Whether it's neo-noir, something a little bit newer that's been influenced by the genre, or one straight from the, from the genre itself. Do you have a favorite noir movie before we go here, Dave? Mm, I, You know, how do you define a noir movie? We've right. Already, we've already right. talked about I, I, I'll give you two. Uh, you know, a classic noir movie and then something a little more neo-noir. I got to go with Usual Suspects. It's one of my all-time favorite movies. It really, really is. Um, and it's definitely a neo-noir. But if you want to go classic, old-school, 
literally black and white. I do love The Third Man. It's a good movie. Oh, yeah. And it's one of those where I don't like black and white movies. Just watch this. And you're going to feel, well, you know, it was, yeah, it wasn't what I thought. They might not love it, you know, but it's a darn good movie and it's definitely film noir. And you got one of the biggest stars in Hollywood history with Orson Welles. Even though he's barely in it, the movie's all about him. It's a rare movie set post-World War II that at a time there were no female directors. There was a female director with that one. And uh, and like you said, just the bizarre almost musical quality to that movie despite what it is. And you don't ever, <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard a movie with that kind of score before or ever since, really. It just, it is its own thing. It is so set apart and it is, it absolutely is film noir in the classic sense. Uh, yeah, well worth checking out. The Third Man. 1947? I think. Is that when that came out? Late 40s. Late I, I 40s, yeah. Which year? I just looked it up a moment ago. The Well, the movie itself, I had just looked it up. I got to say, Austria's got some ago. amazing sewers. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, wow. Um, I, would, I would probably say different kinds of movies, but again, they both fit in that genre. I, I mean, The Maltese Falcon is a really good one if you yeah. like a, a bit more of a detective type of movie. That's that's an excellent one if you're looking for that. Um, Double Indemnity is is truly a, a noir classic and maybe maybe the one that defines so much of the genre so well. I have well. a feeling I know what you're going to say, but keep going. What do you mean? Uh, to keep going, I... I, I th- those are the two I'm suggesting. Those. I was totally convinced you were going to whip out Casablanca. I don't consider that a noir. That's more of a drama for for my book. I mean, yes, you've got you you've got kind of a setting and tonality that feels very noir esque with that, but that's more of a romantic movie, more of a drama type movie than than a noir. That for my call, for my al- book, it's so I would it's almost more call that. that a noir. You've got uh, you've got him. You know, Rick is basically hospitality to the Nazis, not because he is sympathetic to him or likes him, but he kind of has to. So he's kind of playing both sides a little bit. Is he good guy? Is he bad guy? You don't really know. He's, he fits that character. As There's far a as that, style. as far as that characterization, yes, it does. It does suit that, but it is a little bit more, and it, it's a little it's bit more of a detective. Kind of. It it's a little bit more of a brighter toned yeah. movie though than, than some of the other ones that we've gotten into. And I mean, even though there's a little bit of a moral ambiguity about Rick Blaine, there's still you get enough to see that he's he's got he's got more of a, a of an interest here and more of a side than than he would let on that that he's revealing throughout. So um a little bit different, I would say. It, it, it doesn't quite fit the noir category, okay. but it's got those elements to it. See, movie debates can be fun. I know. They can be very fun. So thank Here, you. So here's one more thing I'll, I'll pass on real quick, and you've kind of touched base on it. We were talking about the Oscars to start the show. Well, I'm less excited because I haven't seen a lot of those. I want more new content. Those of you that are on the younger side and maybe you haven't seen a lot of these great movies, there is literally 100 years of movies out there that if you've only watched stuff that's been quote-unquote new for you, just imagine how much stuff is out there. And as you get older and you start to appreciate movies more, not just exploding alien movies and punch-em-outs and speeding cars, and I love those too, but eventually you start to really appreciate movies and you start hearing about you know actors like Burt Lancaster. Who's Burt Lancaster? I have no idea. You start looking up on IMDb, who is Burt Lancaster? What is his best movies? Well, this one was, one, well, I'm going to go check this movie out. You have literally a bajillion movies out there 
Maybe I should have not used the word literally, but you have a whole mess of movies out there that I bet you've never seen or let alone heard of. This is a great opportunity to let your fingers do the walking, find a couple of what are called great movies, and go check them out. What yep. do you think about them? And film noir, for an exact for an example, you talk about Noir Alley on TCM. If you have cable and you have TCM, go check it out. Go see a film noir movie, especially if right. one is coming up that's pretty good. It's supposed to be pretty good. I think I'll check it out. The Third Man, by the way, 1949. 1949. Okay. Yes. I was close. It was two years. Very close, yep. So well worth checking them out. Uh, and not just more any of these movies. If you are sitting at home, <sighs> tired of this pandemic, and you want to go see something new, it might not be new, but it might be new to you. That's a great point, and that's been part of what I've enjoyed tapping into is finding those that are new to me that are those more classic movies like that, including noir it's a very fun thing. and before you watch a good noir alley movie go swing by the bemidji theater get some popcorn and an icy or whatever you want to do support your local theater snack bar because that's really where they make their bank not the movie tickets as much as it is the snack bar so support them and when movies are back up and running full speed and throttle and safe to do so by all means charge because i'll be there too all right let's hop out of the alleyway here let's. Dave. yes that sounds good back into the light for yes. us I'm Joel Hoover. I'm Dave Brooks. And we will see you at the movies.